you've seen the headlines. Decreased budgets and increased scrutiny mean it's more important than ever for advertisers to produce outcomes. Mountain is helping brands do that by turning the TV into a performance marketing machine. With Mountain, your ads reach tens of thousands of audience segments and get seen exclusively on premium streaming networks. And you can sit back as your campaigns automatically optimize thousands of times a day to drive peak performance. The result? High-impact ads served at the right time, right place, and to the right audience. Visit Mountain.com to learn more. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is a longtime friend. We just uh, had occasion to reunite in her home of Los Angeles, and absolutely thrilled to have Nicole Lappin with us here, the founder of Money News Network, and so much more. So welcome, Nicole. So much more. Thank you. I think my biggest accolade is just being your pal. Well, uh, listen, that's uh, very prestigious in certain circles, but uh, uh, <laughs> uh, hardly. So, Nicole, th there's so many places to start with you. You have such an interesting and, and varied career, and you're still young, so much ahead of you. Um, but I'd love to go back and start by talking about early days working as a correspondent for some CBS network stations in South Dakota and Kentucky, going all the way back. And I know you went to Northwestern. Um, we shared a major. I was a major in political science as well. Uh, but I'd love to talk about this passion for what you do. You've worked in so many of the, uh, the bellwether companies in this space, but I thought it might be kind of interesting just to go back to those early, early days working for a CBS affiliate in the great states of South Dakota and Kentucky. The greatest. Um, wow, we're going back like 20 years. So back then, there was no reality TV. There was no YouTube. There was no skipping steps in media. It was just go to South Dakota or a market like that. It was Sioux Falls. We covered two thirds of the state uh, or Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, WKYT <laughs> in the bluegrass and you make your mistakes in the smaller markets and then the idea was you work your way up right and you go from I think there was about 20 no sorry 200 um, media markets right in the United States they go from smallest to biggest so number one would be New York number two would be LA number three Chicago whatever and so you start at the bottom and you try to climb your way up. And um, that's what I thought I did would do. Um, I didn't have any connections. You know, uh, I had a really broken home. And so I thought I would just ultimately at the end of my career get to CNN. Uh, that was the goal. And when I was in some of these smaller markets, I was so, so, so young at the time, Matt, uh, there were little newspapers that would do profiles on me like who is this doogie hauser type lady on the news because i was really really young and um and i said if i could say nicole lap and cnn before i die i'll die a happy woman um and that was my ultimate goal now i auditioned to be an anchor for one of their new programs when i was 20 
Um, and I ended up starting there when I was 21. Uh, so I wasn't ready to die just yet. I needed to then come up with a bunch more goals. Absolutely. And, and many achieved. Um, you also were one of the first women to report from the floor of one of the exchanges. I think it was the first business network at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Talk about that experience and uh, the climate for young female reporters. Oh, wow. So while I was uh, doing these local news markets, um, I stalked this station chief in Chicago. So when I went to college, I didn't have a college experience. I started really young because I skipped a couple grades and then all I wanted to do was start working. Um, and so I worked the entire time I was in college and um, I stalked the station chief in Chicago. Um, it was a Weigel Broadcasting Group and they had a station in Milwaukee. And so I thought, okay, I think it was like 30 something um, in the media markets. And I thought, oh, that's my big break. I got to get there, report at the CBS station. I'll take the train every day, whatever. I finally got a meeting with the station chief there. And I said, I want to be your new Milwaukee correspondent. And he was like, well, no, also you don't know about geography. So first, maybe figure that out. You can't commute to Milwaukee every day. It's not a thing. But do you know anything about business news? And I was 18. Um, and I knew zero things about business news, zero about business. My parents immigrated from Israel. They grew up on a kibbutz, which is, as you know, you know, like it kind of they were orphans. And um, my mother barely made it out of high school in Israel. Um, and I knew nothing about business news. Like my parents used cash growing up. My boyfriend in high school said he wanted to be a hedge fund manager. I thought he wanted to be in gardening. Like I was next level clueless. But of course I said, yes, I love business news. <laughs> I just wanted a job. And I started on the floor of the Chicago Merck for this uh, nationally syndicated morning business show at the time for Business Network. And um, I was freaked out. I didn't understand any of what was going on, um, but I figured I have discovered harder things in life. I'd um, learned harder things in life. Um, I could figure this one out. And so what started to, what started as sounding like Chinese turned into something I could understand. And ultimately I spoke the language of money. I realized it's a language just like anything else. If you go to China and you don't speak Chinese, you'll be confused. If you go to Wall Street, you don't speak the language of money, you'll be confused. And I was. Um, and then I understood it and then I spoke it to the world. And then fast forward, you know, a decade later, I ended up teaching other people about it. So I'm the least likely person to do it. Like I didn't work at a bank. I didn't get my MBA. I used to be embarrassed about that, but now I use it as a badge of honor because it's like, if I could do it, really anyone can do it. Yes, I was a political science major, but I actually, uh, fun fact, started as a poetry major. <laughs> so wow. oh, that is that is a fun fact. <laughs> so truly so, like the least likely person to be in business news. So so let's let's go back to this passion for news and that career objective, which you attained at 21 to work for CNN. Uh, this came up the other day, we were talking about the war in the Gulf as sort of a seminal moment in the rise of cable news and remember watching the war all week, I think it was about 1992, 1993, 
and Bernard Shaw, who just passed from CNN. And every day we'd watch the 11 o'clock briefing with General Schwarzkopf and et cetera, et cetera. And it sounds like that was a moment that also sort of piqued your interest in the genre more broadly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Christiane Amanpour at the time, right? And I, I thought... I wanted to go report the first draft of history. I wanted to go, you know, make a difference, be a war correspondent, all of these types of things. And um, and I ended up writing the first draft of history in some sense, just not the kind I expected. I ended up becoming a writer also, just not the kind I expected. Um, but yeah, I used to sneak on the news growing up um, and watch the same types of things that you're talking about, Bernard Shaw and, and the briefings and chicken noodle news at the time, right? Um, that's how CNN was referred to. Um, and, and yeah, I, I really became hooked on, um, on, on storytelling. Um, my family actually um, was in the news when I was growing up, like for nefarious things. And so it was something that had hurt me, um, actually, because they were covered in like the local papers and things and kids would sort of make fun of me at school, um, because they went through this horrible divorce with all sorts of sordid allegations. And it would be something that was really embarrassing. And then, um, you know, I think we're drawn to the things that hurt us. And so being in the news kind of hurt me in some ways. And so I wanted to take the power back. And that was my was some of my early experiences with it. And being the youngest anchor ever on CNN, I mean, Lord knows how many people have appeared on air uh, to be the youngest at age 21. That's an incredible badge of honor, an incredible achievement. Talk about that journey to get to CNN. And do you remember some of those early stories that you covered way back when as an awfully young reporter? Oh, man. Yeah, I remember auditioning um, and they flew me to Atlanta um, on in first class, which was awesome. They put me up at the Intercontinental. I'll never forget. They had a, a guy with a sign with my name on it waiting for me to take me in a car. Um, I was like, this is the coolest experience ever. I'm assuming I'm not going to get this job because they're going to like figure out how young I am. And I don't know, maybe that's illegal or something. <laughs> um, and I was just like, thank you so much for this experience. This is so cool. Um, I went into the CNN center where of course later I worked for about four years. It looked like Disneyland to me. Um, they had tours. Have you been to the CNN center? In Atlanta? Yeah, I, I worked yeah. there actually as an, in I went to Emory and, oh. and, and as an intern, the Atlanta Chamber of Commerce, before they built their own building, was in the CNN Tower. And, and uh, I spent a lot of time there. And we used to go to Reggie's Tavern that was there. And uh, uh, it was a, a British tavern in Atlanta. I'm not exactly sure how that ended up there. Reggie was uh, from the UK. And it was as an intern there working at the chamber and uh, spending after work hours with uh, a mentor of mine, a guy named Lee Ayers, who worked at the Chamber of Commerce at that CNN tower that I learned an awful lot. CNN Center or CNN Tower, what they call it? I think Center. Called it Center. Um, and 
when I was there, there was just a McCormick and Schmitz. So I remember that. (laughs) And and Chick-fil-A, of course, and the Omni Arena, which is long gone. The the Omni was there um, right next to actually where I sat, which was wild. The first couple weeks I started, I think there was a shooting like right outside my glass door um, next to my desk. And I was on CNN covering this breaking news shooting inside the CNN center, which was wild. I was like, um, I definitely wanted to cover like crime, just not that was really unexpected. Um, and so I remember some of the executives at the time, they were like, you looked really scared on the air. You know, Chris John doesn't look scared. I'm like, Chris John knows she was going to get shot at. She's wearing a flak jacket. I was just minding my business <laughs> sitting at my desk. So it was wild times. But yeah, I, I never expected to actually work there. Um, it was just the coolest experience. They'd give these tours. Um, and, you know, like you'd see on the top of the newsroom, like this sort of uh, glass uh, wall where people would, you know, point and take pictures and stuff at the anchors. Um, and and I remember meeting with uh, Darren Kagan at the time, who I totally looked up to. She was the kindest woman ever to me. Um, I watched her on the anchor desk. I was like, wow, one day I'll get here. Um, I did like a breaking news test, um, you know, after some of the shows cleared and they would give me, you know, fake breaking news or whatever was going on that day to see how I would handle it and the teleprompter and then a bunch of tests, like current events tests and things like that. I met with a bunch of executives and I was like, okay, cool. I'm, thank you so much. Um, I went back to my job at that time in Palm Springs. I was a, an investigative reporter on the I team at the CBS station in Palm Springs. And I was like, cool. Uh, three months went by, didn't hear anything. I just, you know, assumed that that was it. And then, um, yeah, three months later, they were like, we focused grouped your tape. I guess that's what they did. And we'd like to offer you this job. <laughs> it's like, I'm getting punked. Am I really getting punked? Um, and so, yeah, I moved to Atlanta. I launched uh, something called CNN Pipeline, um, which was way ahead of its time. And um and yeah, I uh, I never expected to hit my dream job when I was 21. And you also got to cover some huge events, uh, Israel-Hezbollah conflict, I think the Michael Jackson funeral, all kinds of uh, very varied and interesting events. You must look back upon that period very fondly, I would think. There are some really fond memories. Um, I... Uh, I also covered Virginia Tech. Um, I remember that was, uh, you know, the the largest massacre at the time, school shooting. Um, I'd have students back then reach out to me asking me, like, if I knew anything who were on campus, which was really scary because I was like, I... I don't know. I don't have all the answers. Um, And that was a time where we were like, you know... um, kind of coming up in journalism school, there was this idea of this like Edward R. Murrow, voice of God, like I have all the answers, I'm going to give them to you. And uh, and I had to say, you know, I don't have all the answers. Like I'm figuring it out. We're all figuring it out. Um, I'll get you whatever insight I know. Um, but that was, that was really, really kind of a traumatizing experience for everybody involved. Um, 
because they were looking to us. It was the only streaming network in the dorm rooms at the time. Um, and so, so yeah, I, I covered that. I covered, um, yeah, Michael Jackson's, uh, funeral. I went to the Staples Center at the time. Um, and yeah, the, you know, I had a lot of anxiety during that period. So I'm not, some of it is fond for sure. I would never lie to you. I'm a very bad liar. So I forget my lies. So I just don't try to do it. But, um, but a lot of it was filled with anxiety, Matt. And, you know, I felt like I was at this large news gathering organization and I, I could call anybody in the world. I could get anybody on the phone. Um, I had access to anything. This was like, you know, my playground. And I just wanted to, at the end of every day, I was like, I'm not doing enough. Um, I have this amazing platform that I don't think I deserve. Um, and one day my badge is not going to work because they're going to figure out they made a mistake. Like I had all of this anxiety, this imposter syndrome. Like I tried to act older so nobody knew like how much, how old I was. I always skirted that question, but you know, look, it's that type of stuff is a journey for all of us to become comfortable in uh, your own skin. But I look back at it, you know, as like a ball of stress and anxiety. Well, that's I, I love that uh, honest answer. How did they do their, you know, clearly they recognized and they knew what age you were. Did they do a good job, do you think, trying to nurture you, bring you along? Were there mentors, either fellow on-air talent or on the business side, who tried to help you as a young reporter? Or was it, you're on your own, Bob, figure it out? There were definitely um, some anchors and reporters who helped and were awesome. There were also some who didn't help and were really not awesome. Um, it's a it's a crazy business or it was back then um, more so, you know, um, it was like there are a certain number of spots and people were very protective of them. Um, I thought that women would be um, better to me. I, I write about this in my books. Um, I, I just assumed, you know, like it took a lot for all of the women to get, um, you mentioned the Chicago Merc. There were only a few. I'll never forget like how small the women's bathroom was compared to the men's. Cause there just wasn't that many. Um, but you know, it, it was interesting. I, I didn't get a lot of support from women at the time, but there were a lot of male, um, anchors and reporters who were wonderful to me, who I, who I still stay in touch with. Tony Harris, um, was incredible. Um, he went on to Al Jazeera, I think. And then, um, you know, I, I think he's producing things on his own right now. Um, but th there were, there were some women who were, um, who were kind and, and helpful, but I think that back then there was, there was still a little bit of, um, territorialness that I wasn't expecting, but quickly, quickly became hip to. And, and talk about, you know, the evolution of, of the news and of CNN. Back then, CNN was a dominant player. And I was lucky enough to know Ted Turner pretty well. I spent a lot of time uh, with him in my early career in sports. I had written the bid for New York that won for the 1998 Goodwill Games. That was a big uh, Ted Turner passion project. And we spent the summer of 1994 in St. Petersburg, Russia together. 
Um, and I think was it was an absolutely incredible visionary way, way, way ahead of his time. And back then, CNN was sort of the news. It wasn't a take on the news. And I see Chris Licht is trying to move them back to where they were. But the news landscape has evolved in such a, uh, a polarizing way in America. Y you work not only there, but you worked at CNBC. You spent time at Bloomberg. Um, and you have the benefit of, of perspective uh, on where this is all gone. As you look at CNN and the news landscape today, um, what's your take on where this whole thing has evolved and the whole cable news world um, in America today in 2023? Well, I even saw it back then too. I remember um, really questioning like, why we were taking at the time like Paris Hilton leaving jail um or going like wall-to-wall -wall coverage with Anna Nicole Smith's death who you know I think that was you know Farrah Fawcett died I think the same day as Michael Jackson who became sort of eclipsed by that it was wall-to-wall -wall coverage of I think just you know the equivalent of TV clickbait it was it was stuff that I, I think confused a lot of the purists. And so even back then, um, you know, this is 15 years ago more. Uh, I think that there was this shift to this grab of quick ratings as Fox was, you know, gaining steam. And I think that ultimately hurt the brand um, because that's not a sustainable way to cover the news and trying to get back there is is hard once you've sort of corrected the other way. And, and Nicole, you were also there for some of the early evolutions of the news and the streaming platforms. I know you did some work with AOL. And, and I think what you just said is a point worth digging at a little deeper. It seems like today um, the crazy or the salacious is what's rewarded. And, mm -hmm. you know, I often lament that, you know, of the 400, nearly 450 some odd members of the House of Representatives, the names who I know are the ones who are really crazy. You know, the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Boberts and my congressman yeah. hap happens to be, I happen to be fortunate enough, we'll put that in bold quotes, to have George mm -hmm. Santos as my local member of the House of <laughs> Representatives, uh, how lucky we are. Uh, th that landscape wasn't always the case. You know, it used to be that if you said for a young person, he or she one day could be a senator or a Congress uh, man or woman, that was considered a compliment. I'm not so sure you would say that as a compliment today. Uh, talk about how the landscape has evolved and how the crazy, I'll use that word, you don't have to, uh, is amplified. I think that, um, you know, in my Pollyanna-ish days of like being this card-carrying member of the fourth estate and, you know, wanting to cover, you know, this sort of nostalgia of the Gulf War and the good old days, like, um, I, I think that I also realized that media is a business, right? It's not a charity. Um, it's not you know, subsidized. Uh, so 
So I understand from a business perspective that, you know, this is ultimately the stuff that people will tune in to watch, you know, wall to wall. Um, but, you know, it's it's hard to to sort of um, get high off this like quick uh, high supply and then try to, you know, clean it up later. Uh, maybe that's what Chris is doing. I worked with him when I was at CNBC and I, I did um, Morning Joe every day. And, and you know, they did, they really stayed pure to that. Um, I wrote about Mika Brzezinski in my book, who was a mentor of mine when I was at CNBC. She would talk to me like every morning because I did this really early morning show. Um, she would talk to me about like my voice, my outfit, my everything. She had done a similar early morning show, um, at CBS, I think before that. And, um, I don't name her in my first book, Rich Bitch, but it's clear who she is. She was the one who like burned the scripts of Paris Hilton or something like that. And on the air saying like, I'm not doing this. I'm not reading this shit. <laughs> and so, um, so they were really purist, you know, whether that translates into um, what Chris can do at CNN. I don't know. Maybe the maybe the ship has sailed there. What do you think? Uh, I hope not. You know, I, I think the uh, we're a better country when the news is the news and we're a better country when we have two strong political parties. Uh, and, you know, I, I watch like many the theater of Kevin McCarthy having to go through, you know, 14 or so votes to become the speaker. And it was entertaining, but it was also sad and really reflected poor upon the United States as a country globally. And I, I, I think, you know, a lot of the leaders in Washington today, they're in the beltway or they're going back to their districts and the absence of a global perspective um, is really palpable. And uh, that was a colossal embarrassment for the country, uh, whether you're on the right or the left, it makes no difference. Just that to show such dysfunction in a public way just can't be good. And um, I would like to see us go back to the news. I mean, I'm not sure I could name all three of the network, you know, evening news anchors now. Maybe I could. Lester Holt, uh, Nora. O'Donnell and is it David Muir at ABC? But those used to be names that you knew right away. And, you know, that whether it was Peter Jennings or going back further to Walter Cronkite or, you know, they commanded such respect. And if they told you I'm something, yeah, 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 exactly. We believed it. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not so sure that I, I, I'm, I know we're not better off this way. And um, I hope we can get a pathway back to that. Let, let's stay focused on, on you. You then make a transition into more of the business news arena and have built um, a tremendous career. I'll, I'll call it an empire uh, dealing in the world of money and financial related news, advice, et cetera. But talk about that transition in the early days. You mentioned uh, time on Morning Joe at uh, MSNBC, but talk about that evolution into really a guru of sorts in the financial arena and financial related reporting and uh, uh, incredible prolific career as an author as well. Thank you. Uh, 
the truth is it was all by accident. <laughs> there was no master plan. Uh, so at 21, I got my dream job. And at 25, I was let go from my dream job, right? I, I experienced a lot really early on. And um, so my entire division got let go when I was 25. I didn't even know what that meant. Like I got called from HR and it was a very confusing experience to me uh, looking back. And uh, I was mid-contract and I was supposed to get, you know, paid out through my contract. But, you know, I had this whole scarcity mindset um, just from how I was raised that like, I'm never going to get another job again. But ultimately I did. I got two offers at uh, Bloomberg and at CNBC. Um, this was around the financial crisis. And I ended up going to CNBC um, and doing the early morning show there. Uh, early morning means starting at 4 a.m. Uh, so it was the only global show, like pre-trading in the U.S., middle of day in, in London and, and Europe and closing bell in Asia. Um, and it was like really wonky stuff. It was more than I had ever covered. Um, so I studied really, really hard and I knew zero people when I moved to New York. Um, and, you know, there were a bunch of anchors there who had been covering this for a really long time, had their people that would come on and I needed to book a show with CEOs and politicians and, and all of these things. And I, you know, just figured it out. Um, and so I was there for a few years, really. Um, I was the managing editor for the United States for my show, Worldwide Exchange. So I'd cover, um, you know, I did like a States of Pain series where I'd go talk to the governor of uh, Washington state and then fly back and do the show and then do Larry Kudlow's show at night. And like, I, I literally never slept. My body was falling apart. Um, it was just every day I felt like I had jet lag or something. My skin was like shivering. I had pink eye, and like random infections. My body was just like, you cannot not sleep. That's not a thing. Um, and so I, uh, I left, um, when there was new management who wanted me to stop doing like more of the original reporting and just, you know, sit there and read the teleprompter. And I was like, that's not me. There's a lot of people who can do that. And that job is a commodity. Like I, you can just put another young woman there to read like what's happening with the Dow. And, and at that point, um, that trajectory that uh, was going on in the news from like small markets to network news to like the broadcast stations where, you're, you know, you go be a White House correspondent, then you go to the morning show and then the nightly news like that paradigm had totally shifted. We had Kardashians hosting the Today Show at the time, like, you know, Mario Lopez going and, and hosting. It was it was just that was not what had happened before. Those were really coveted news jobs. And I remember saying to my agent at CAA at the time, Alan Berger, this does come full circle um, because I stopped working with them. He said I was ruining my career by leaving uh, CNBC uh, because I was on this sort of trajectory. And I said, Alan, uh, this trajectory doesn't exist anymore. And um, anyway, fast forward 10 years or 
or so later, I just re-signed with CAA and it was kind of a mea culpa, like you were right, um, which was very, very unexpected and vindicating. Um, but I did see that this sort of traditional news path completely changed. And I knew in order to have longevity um, that I needed to you know, try to build this on my own. And I saw a huge white space in trying to talk about this information to an audience that I believe needed it most, uh, which was my former self, the girl who started on the floor of the Merc, who thought it was a mall at the time, <laughs> who, you know, it was super clueless about uh, finances. Uh, I, I saw white space in, in trying to reach her. Um, and so that's what I set out to do. I burned my corporate bra. Um, I had no idea how I was going to accomplish that. And um, I was interviewed by one of the like New York papers, maybe it was the Daily News or like the Post or something that was that asked me, what am I going to do next? And it was just during that interview that I came up with, <laughs> I was like, I'm going to write a book called Rich Bitch. <laughs> I had no idea how I was going to do that. It sounded like a good title. <laughs> and and I said it in the interview. I, I, I'm sure I could find it somewhere. And then... Um, Accomplishing that was was obviously harder than I expected. Um, it had taken me about 10 years to get a book deal. Um, I had tried in my past life too. Um, and and then I did that and it became more popular than I expected. And it showed me that there was this resonance um, in democratizing financial news. You know, CNBC and then I later did... Um, a show and and some special correspondence with Bloomberg reach like an amazing audience. They are the old rich white dudes, the richest of them. <laughs> and it's fantastic for uh for what they are looking to do. And, you know, they on the Golf Channel like swap for number 1 and 2 with highest net worth viewing audience. And that is great. And then that's just not the audience that I felt like I was meant to reach. And uh, reach them you have, uh, and we'll talk about uh, not just your first book, but but others as well. But talk about that evolution from being on-air talent to creating your own production company. There were a lot of evolutions, uh, and you're still, you know, early 30s at, at latest at that point, awfully young doing big things. Thanks. Yeah, I left uh, CNBC. I was 27. Um, and so already at that point, you know, I was in my 20s. I never felt like my age. I always felt like I grew up really quickly. Um, and uh, and at that point, I had already had like a decade of network news experience. And so, you know, I went and I just figured it out the hard way. I, I saw that there was this space which has now come true more so than it was back then, like that financial content and, you know, business reality shows can be exciting and um, mainstream and resonant and all of these things. But I, I pounded that pavement so, so hard trying to convince talk shows and Hollywood and, you know, everybody that this, could be a thing. Um, and I, you know, I did have successes and, and I would say little wins along the way, but I think only now has the zeitgeist really caught up to what I was saying 
back then, you know, uh, financial influencing was not a thing. Um, I did some of these first deals with brands because when I left news, um, I could then take corporate money, which was a whole new thing for me. You know, I, I struggled with my first big brand deal. Um, it was all state. They did a huge, you know, campaign. I was like in commercials and there was a big like media buy that they put against this. And there was probably some blog, one of the snarky ones, Gawker or something at the time that was like, Nicole is like, she was, you know, on, on network news and now she's hawking insurance. I was like, first of all, no, I was not hawking insurance. Um, and, and I struggled with whether or not to do that deal. Cause I, it felt so like church and statey to me in the way that I had come up in like really traditional journalism. But you know what? They had branded me as a financial expert um, and done this big buy that I benefited from beyond what they were paying me. Um, They allowed my message to get across and I didn't feel icky about it. Um, I felt like the ends justified the means. If I'm going to be able to, on their dime, reach millions of people, they put like the ad in the back of People magazine at the time. I mean, I didn't realize like how many people would actually see that, but it allowed me to create this content um, that I wanted to for younger women or, you know, a more mainstream audience that wasn't watching shows with a ticker on the bottom. And they allowed, you know, that to scale in a way that I wasn't able to at the time. And so, um, so yeah, I, I, when I could start taking brand money in a, I obviously a responsible uh, way. I, I always do it really um, judiciously, but it's it's been an incredible partnership because because many, as you know, you'll forget more than I will know about um, these brands and buyers and CMOs. Uh, you know, they it doesn't feel like you're you know hawking something. It it feels like the content you care about can just have a bigger megaphone and platform. Well, you know, these days, and I, I don't have to tell you this, everybody's in the content business in one form or another. Talk about the evolution as an author. Uh, I love the uh, accidentalness of a lot of these career moments that you had, but not everybody, you know, at, I guess, your first book, give or take 30 years old, uh, going back to Rich Bitch, and then there was boss bitch and uh, becoming superwoman, and then a long-term deal with HarperCollins leadership to write many, many books to, that you've written since and to follow. But that's a really interesting evolution. Did you always see that coming? Was it a goal? Here you accomplish your goal to become CNN on-air on talent at 21, gone at 25, uh, but clearly a lot of goals still on the list. and. Uh, becoming an incredibly prolific author, not everybody has that, and you're still not even forty. <laughs> I am still not forty. Um, yeah, you know, Matt, I have a sickness. Like, I, I really don't feel like I'm ever satiated. I, I it's a problem. Like, you know, when you create these goals. I constantly move the goalpost on myself of what success is. Like I even move it mid game. Like I never get my brain to the other side of what 
happiness fulfillment is around career. It is just insatiable. Um, I don't recommend it, <laughs> but it's been something that's happened throughout my career as you know, these twists and turns. So thank you for, you know, navigating through them. Um, I've just needed to figure it out. Um, and I didn't have the pedigree, like I didn't have the silver spoon in my mouth or any of that stuff um, that, you know, I, I would have loved. Uh, I don't hate people who do, uh, but I just figured it out. You know, I didn't expect to write one business book, much less you know, four or four and a half, we consider a journal, much less like six more to come. I wanted to be like a poet. I wanted to sit under a tree and write poetry all day long. And so when these entrepreneurial experts, you know, Gary Vee, and by the way, I put him on CNN for the first time when he was Wine Library TV. He's always been uh, terrific. I, I've like argued with him and those types of guys that, who say, you know, go out and do what you love. YOLO, FOMO, whatever, yo. I'm like, listen, dude, there is no shame in feeding your family. There is no shame in paying the bills. Like I didn't have the luxury to sit under a tree and write poetry all day long. Like that's really what I would love doing. But I found the shaded part of the Venn diagram. So the things that I loved and the opportunities that I had, and I shaded in the middle part. And and that's what I've done time and again. So became a writer, not the kind I expected, became on TV or in media, just not how I expected. And you know what? It's not perfect. I, I've had younger women like um, who I've hired and and I remember leaving because they said, I just don't feel passionate about this. I'm like, well, you know what? I don't feel passionate about like 90% of the things I'm doing right now, but you got to pay the bills. Like your career and work is is 100% where you make money. So you should optimize for that. Like you can find passion in a lot of other places. Am I passionate about the things that I'm doing now? For sure. But I've grown into that. I've grown into this mission and this purpose, um, you know, an, a lot by accident and a lot um, out of necessity. I know you well enough to know that you have a tremendous amount of passion in you. What, what, what a great journey and what a great story. Can we talk about the latest and talk about the Money News Network, which is relatively new, uh, very ambitious, not surprised, but let's talk about the evolution of that and where it is now and where you see it going. Absolutely. So um, I had done a show with the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, Jason Pfeiffer, for a while, uh, you know, during my, uh, my book journey, I was talking to mostly women, um, you know, and, and through other uh, reality TV shows that I was doing and, and columns and things like that. And Jason and I, I met at a conference and I was like, well, this is kind of like the guy version of me. Um, I was at Cannes Lions, the nerd can, um, on Rose, like drinking a ton of rosé as you do there. And, um, I came up with an idea. I called Jason. I had just met him and I said, let's do a podcast. Let's do a show. At that point, I wasn't sure about the podcasting space. And I said, well, if I get into it, I want to have like a he said, she said thing, because I do a lot of like lady conversations and I don't know what what men think. So like you come on. And so we created Hush Money with iHeart. Um, and during the pandemic, you know, the only things that matter, health and wealth. And that turned into my daily show, Money Rehab. Um, and that show became really successful top 10 of Apple business charts is still there. 
And, um, and last year, uh, I decided to buy back the IP of both shows and use those. I saw another sort of white space in this idea of niche networks in podcasting. And I saw the power and the growth capability of podcasting, um, how rapidly it was growing, the opportunities, the MA activity that was going on there. And I said, you know what? Um, there's not a CNBC of podcasting. So let's use these strong shows as tent poles to create a network. And and that's what I did. Money News Network is a podcast first uh, network of the best business and finance shows out there that are curated. And as you know, like the best way to grow podcasts is through podcast to podcast um, promotion. It's hard to do it from other platforms. Um, and so we thought that we could create this ecosystem that um, that grows new shows uh, based on the existing popular ones. And then we're able to sell into those and also really disrupt this ad model, which I think is shitty right now, um, especially from the big guys uh, to just shove in a bunch of crappy uh, programmatic ads. Um, you know, it happened when I was with a bigger network. It's just a, like audio pollution, I think. And I wanted to do it better with with premium um, integrations and partnerships, uh, things that we really care about. I take my responsibility, um, very seriously to my listener. Uh, you know, thank God that we didn't do an FTX ad, right. Or a lot of this other crap. Um, I, you know, I have a huge audience of female skewing. I mean, we reach a million listeners a month. Um, and I take her, uh, trust super seriously. It keeps me up at night. Um, my body is probably breaking down in a way that, uh, when I haven't, when I didn't sleep when I was at CNBC, because I feel so much, uh, care and responsibility for who I'm talking to. The subject matter is serious. I mean, we're not talking about like how to, you know, create a smoky eye. I'm teaching people how to, protect their really hard-earned money. And so I think having control of the partners um, ultimately will be better for the partners, for the business, and for the overall space. Great, great stuff. And you talk about the you know dominant presence with female leaders. We spoke to uh, uh, someone who I'm sure you know, uh, we love Julia Borston. And Julia had a great book, uh, and cited a statistic, which I was, uh, I guess, surprised and not surprised at the same time, that only 2% of venture capital goes to female-led businesses. And the other side of that coin was female-led businesses are more successful as a general rule than male-led businesses. Talk about the evolving role of women in the financial landscape. And do you think we can move the needle on that pretty horrifying statistic, 98% of venture capital money going to male-led businesses versus only 2% for female-led businesses. Yeah, there was also a really interesting uh, study showing that while the um, female gender pay gap uh, has narrowed, the investing gap and the wealth gap is really wide. So women have made more money, but it's like sitting in our checking accounts and we're not putting it to work. Um, you know, there was just a global study that showed 
Um, one in 10 women feel like they don't fully understand investing, uh, about 28% feel confident about investing some of their money. Um, you know, in the United States, some 41% of women feel confident, but 86% of asset managers surveyed say they're targeting a male customer. And so what we're seeing is this like lag in actually investing, uh, the money that we're now making. Um, and so I think that's the next horizon, um, in addition to venture investing um, and getting funding into female founders. I think it's also this shift to um, to closing the, the investing in the wealth gap. Great. Well, Nicole, this was such a, a joy to talk to you and, and hear your story. It's a great, great story. Uh, still early days and I love what you're doing with the Money News Network. Uh, it was, uh, this was really fun. So thanks so much for doing this and joining us. The TV is no longer just a brand awareness play. With Mountain's self-serve connected TV ad software, you can get real-time data-backed insights that take the guesswork out of TV ad measurement. With Mountain, you can track your connected TV ad performance down to the last decimal, compare it to your other channels with leading web analytics integrations, and even see which viewers are taking the next step to visit your website or make a purchase, regardless of what household device they use. Visit Mountain.com to learn more.